Well, good morning. As we gather week by week as the family of God, it is a privilege for us to go through good times and also to go through bad times as we serve the Lord together. We're glad to have Bert here this morning with his sons and one daughter-in-law, and we're glad for that reunion, but we're sad for the reason that has brought it about as Nancy is in her final days, but welcome among us this morning. We pray that you will feel the love and comfort of Christ this morning as we gather. And this morning, as I was preparing to come, I got word from Elizabeth Garcia that her father, Phil Peterson, passed away this morning. He had been sick for some time, and I had the tremendous privilege of being with him a couple of times this week, including yesterday. And I would sing hymns, and though he was having a hard time taking any breath, he wanted to sing along. I asked him what scriptures he wanted to read and uh, have read, and we would read. And the last scripture passage I read was from Romans chapter 8. Beautiful passage of the power of the gospel from beginning to end. And I said, Phil, isn't that good news? It begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. And he just closed his eyes and he repeated, no condemnation, no separation. He didn't say much after that. I prayed with him. I said goodbye. And now he experiences in a way that we can only imagine the hope of those two phrases, no condemnation and no separation. Let's pray for these two families before we continue on in our time in the word this morning. Father, we thank you that you are the God of all comfort. And we thank you that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. And so we around the throne of grace, lift up these two families to you. The Garcias, as they mourn the loss of Phil, and the Binions, as they are on watch concerning their beloved Nancy. And we thank you that the truth of the gospel is as true today as it has ever been. And that the hope that we have sung about this morning is true. And as Phil has now gone off to experience the joys of heaven. And as our sister Nancy will soon join him, we rejoice with them in the truth of the gospel, and then we mourn with their loved ones who will walk through these days ahead. But we thank you that even there, you promise to go with them through the valley, through the difficulty. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, this morning. <clears throat> that you truly are the resurrection and the life. And that is our great hope. And so, Father, would you comfort these families as only you can. And we know you will, because you are good and faithful as we have just sung. And we give praise to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the Pacific Union Railroad was being constructed in the West, they arrived upon a large canyon and they needed to build an elaborate bridge across this canyon for the railway to pass. But the question became, as they began to construct this bridge, could it withstand the heavy usage that would soon be demanded upon it? 
and wanting to test it, the builder of the bridge loaded a train with enough cars and equipment to double the normal payload. The train was driven to the middle of the bridge where it stayed an entire day. And one worker asked, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to break the bridge? And he said, no, I'm trying to prove that the bridge won't break. As we continue on our study of the Gospel of Matthew, we come today to chapter 4. We see that the Lord Jesus Christ stands at the beginning of his public ministry. But before he can enter into that ministry, the Father will put him to the test to see if he will remain faithful and qualified to be the Messiah. He's even going to use the devil as his tool, and he will allow the Son to experience great testing and trial. But like the heavy train upon the constructed bridge, the temptations were not designed to see if he would sin, but to prove, in fact, that he would not that he would withstand the onslaught of the evil one. And because he did, he'll be crowned one day with the king, as the king of heaven and the Lord of all. And that is the hope on which we stand, a foundation that can never fail, because our Lord Jesus never succumbed to temptation, but was faithful to the Father. Well, with that thought, I invite you to stand as we read our passage for this morning, as we read Matthew chapter 4, the verse, first 11 verses. And the lovely and truthful word of God says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let us pray. Father, at the reading of your word, we now recognize our need to sit under its authority, and let it instruct us. And so would you banish all distractions from us now, that we might hear from you as you teach us, as your spirit guides, and as he points us to Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Please be seated. I invite you to take the sermon outline that is in your bulletin and take notes along the way, perhaps to study them during the week to reinforce your understanding of this text. We begin this morning with the test of obedience. The test of obedience. Our text begins by saying that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Notice that Jesus was led to this point by the Spirit of God. This was was a God-sanctioned event. It was not an unusual accident. Jesus was sent 
by the Spirit into the wilderness for the purpose of being tested. And while he is there, there will be an intense battle between good and evil, between light and darkness. This was a time of preparation for Jesus before launching into his public ministry. And as part of that preparation, he will trust the Father and grow and, uh, and trust him and walk in fellowship with him. And he will be guided by the Spirit of God. And so we remember then that the Holy Spirit himself is a living, personal being. He's not just some type of impersonal force. The Spirit of God has guided Jesus all throughout his earthly ministry. And here he will guide him into the wilderness. And so as we see the interaction in the Gospels between Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we see they have this perfect, intimate, eternal relationship. And Jesus, as the God-man, truly God and truly man, will show us how we are to walk in obedience to God and the power of the Holy Spirit, and also how to overcome temptation. And so our text tells us that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. That word is not there by accident. Where they would have been baptized at the, at the Jordan River would have been down low in a valley. You see, the Jordan River empties into the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on earth. And so if you were to leave the, the side of the river, you, of course, would have to go up to get out of the low point so that he could be wandering in the wilderness. So think of where we're at in the life of Jesus. He's just had this wonderful, powerful experience at his baptism. He came up out of the waters and the heavens themselves opened. And the Spirit descended on him as a dove. And the Father spoke his approval. And perhaps we might expect that at least they would allow a little time for celebration. But it seems that there was none. It seems that the time of blessing went right into a time of testing. And you know, life is often like that. It might be, in fact, often is, right after a great victory where we experience something new in the Lord or learn something new in the Word or see the Lord answer a prayer that in the very next point, He leads us into a time of trial and challenge so that we'll continue to depend upon Him. Because His greatest concern is that we become more like Jesus and that we walk in fellowship with Him. If you're experiencing trouble in your life, it might be just because you're obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. He's told you to go and you've gone. He's told you to pray and you've prayed. He's told you to sacrifice and you've sacrificed. He's told you to give and you've given. So it might be that it's just out of obedience that you now find yourself in trial. Now, at times we find ourselves in trial because we have sinned. And so there's discernment that is needed. But Jesus had no sin. He just had this great time of victory of the Spirit descending, the Father giving his approval, and now he's experiencing great temptation led by the Spirit of God, a time of testing into the desert. And so we ask the question then, well, is it testing or tempting? We're told in the text that Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He's just heard the public affirmation that he is the Son of God, and that sonship is going to come under immediate attack. But the word that is used here in the Greek, periazo, actually is translated both as testing and as tempting. And so which one is it here? Is Jesus tempted to sin? Or is he being tested by God? And my response is, yes. It can be both. It often is both under the sovereignty of God. 
we're clearly told that Jesus is led by the Spirit. So that shows that God is actually in control of the process. So he is the one that's allowing this to happen. But at the same time, we're told it is the devil who's doing the tempting. And this allows us then to gain insight into different stories we see in the the scriptures where we can see that what men and devils intend in one situation, God is intending something else. And so we can see the faith of Joseph who said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And when we have this word periazzo and testing and tempting, we see it coming together in the book of James. For the writer of James, the half-brother of Jesus said, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one to sin. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, in the immediate context, they are told to give thanks for the time of testing that they are going through. And so we see both angles working together here, both sides. God is testing, and the devil is tempting, and God is in control. God has arranged the time of testing for Jesus. And we we find assurance then that no matter what we face, nothing happens to us that hasn't first passed by the will of God. And in his good providence and wisdom, he wants his children to grow through testing. That's how our spiritual muscles are developed. As we get in a situation and learn to trust the Lord and pray and confess our sins and humble ourselves before him. Because that's how we will learn that God is good in a deeper way. As someone has said, still waters do not make for skilled sailors. And we want to be mature believers in Christ. We want to be, as it were, those skilled sailors. And in order to become that, we have to go through that time of testing and trial and strengthening and improvement and growing in wisdom. Now we'll have a chance to talk more about temptation as we work our way through the Gospel of Matthew. But let's look a little bit at the nature of the tempter himself. He is called the devil here, which comes from the Greek word diabolos. We might say it's diabolic. That's where we get the word. It means accuser. It means slanderer. And later on in in the New Testament, he will be referred to as the prince of the power of the air. He's going to oppose the kingdom of God, does oppose the kingdom of God at every turn. He's already tried to take out Jesus when Jesus was an infant inciting Herod to try to kill all the children two years old and younger. He's going to make more attempts against Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. But Jesus will win. Because we can affirm this morning that, in the words of Martin Luther, the devil is God's devil. He can do nothing outside of the control of God. He is a created being. Yes, he is a powerful being. But even the devil is subject to the authority and power and sovereignty of God. And though he tries again and again to thwart the plans of God, ultimately he will fail. And so the devil has come to tempt Jesus, which is allowed as a test by God. And what we now have is the 40-day challenge. And our text says, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he, Jesus, was hungry. Now we're not given any more information about the fast. What type of fast it would have been. 
whether it was a complete 24-hour fast, whether it was from food or water. We're not given any of that. It just says it was 40 days, perhaps some reference to Elijah and to Moses, who would have had 40-day fasts. But I think the 40 days here has a clearer reference to Israel and the 40 years that Israel spent wandering in the wilderness. You recall the story. The spies came to scope out the land, and over 40 days they scoped out the land. And then they said, go in. And the Israelites said, no way. And so then for every day that the, they, the, the spies had scoped out the land, the Lord said, you will wander for one year in the wilderness. And so they wandered for 40 years. As Jesus is retracing, as it were, the steps of Israel to be faithful where Israel failed. We recall that Israel passed through the waters into the wilderness where it wandered in disobedience and in rebellion. But Jesus now is coming through the waters and going into the wilderness where we, he will exhibit perfect obedience over 40 days. And so during this 40-day challenge, then the, the Lord Jesus Christ is just having intimate fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit in preparation for their earthly ministry. His earthly ministry. And then we come to the next point, do it your own way. And we're told that after the 40 days, he, Jesus, was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. After the 40 days of testing, he came. At the moment of seeming weakness, the enemy pounces. And notice that here the devil is called the tempter. He's in fact going to be called three names at least in these few verses. The tempter, which we understand what that means. The devil, which we've already seen means accuser. And then he'll be called Satan later on, which means the adversary. Not a good guy. Not a good dude. But because we stand firm in Christ, we can resist his temptation. What does the devil do? He tries to tempt us to use good things for bad purposes. We know that food... Is good for us. Food is necessary, but what is the temptation? Gluttony and overindulgence. We know that money is, is good for us and needed, but what is the temptation? Greed and covetousness and theft. We know that sexual intimacy is good for us within, within the confines of marriage, and yet what is the temptation? And the sundry list of sexual sins that destroy human lives. We know that words can be used for good purposes. But what is the temptation? To slander, to gossip, to harm others, to hurt them. In temptation, the devil tries to lure us to pervert a good thing of God and to use it for negative purposes. But here's the thing. There has to be something appealing about the temptation or we won't be tempted you can put a plate of kale in front of me all day long, and I will not be tempted to eat it. But there might be some other things that do tempt me. And so I need to be aware of where my weaknesses are and be aware of the temptation so that I can stand firm on the truth of God's word and resist. But the problem is we need to realize is that with every temptation, there is a lie. Because it promises more than it can deliver. It promises satisfaction. It promises happiness. It promises pleasure. But there is always a pain that comes with it. But the devil doesn't have to change his tactics because he finds the old tactics are actually quite good. So he continues with the same temptations of power and pleasure and pride 
And those are the very points at which Israel failed in the wilderness. And he'll try the same thing with Jesus in the wilderness. We're, we're told that Jesus here is hungry. And so the devil tempts him to do something outside of or apart from the will of God. If you are the will of God, if you are the son of God, he says, he's trying to sow doubt, not so much in the sonship of Jesus, but will this son remain devoted and obedient to the father? Will he be dependent upon the father? We confess that Jesus is truly God and truly man, but as the Messiah, he also walked fully as a man, subject to all the common temptations of man. And he would model for us then what it is to trust the Father. And he will obey the Father at every turn. He will depend upon the Father at every turn. And he will remind us that obedience to God takes precedence over self-gratification. And so he will trust the Father to meet his needs in God-ordained ways and not through self-gratification. Self-gratification which says, you know what, God, I don't trust you. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Jesus won't do that. And so we might do a, a quick comparison then between what happened with Jesus and what happened with Adam. Adam was in the garden. Jesus was in the wilderness. Adam was surrounded by food and was satisfied. Jesus was surrounded by nothing and was hungry. Adam had companionship. Jesus was alone. Adam was in the best of conditions while seemingly Jesus was in the worst and into both situations, that wicked voice of the enemy spoke. To Adam it was, did God really say? And to Jesus it was, if you are the son of God. Trying to cast doubt on the word of God. But in both cases, God had clearly spoken. And whereas the first Adam failed in the best of conditions, the second Adam succeeded Seemingly in the worst of conditions. He succeeded where the first Adam failed. But I think the temptation, the comparison is even greater when we compare it to Israel in the wilderness. You recall, as we've talked about this in recent weeks, that going back to Exodus 4, God had called Israel my son, my firstborn son, and said, let my people go that they might worship me. And so he led them out of Egypt. He redeemed them. He led them through the waters and into the wilderness. But at the baptism of Jesus... We hear the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And he leads him through the waters and leads him up into the wilderness. And what will Jesus do during the temptations in the desert? We know that the nation of Israel failed, though there had been many who had received the unction of the Holy Spirit. But they failed as a nation. But Jesus himself would never fail. The early church confessed that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He would not do it his own way. He would do it the way of the Father, because he ultimately knows that he is the bread of life. The devil says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is facing this time of trial, and he must pass the test. 
if he can continue on to be qualified to be the Messiah. And he did pass the test, and he'll pass the next one and the next one. And think about this, my friends. You want proof that Jesus is God in the flesh? He lived for 33 years on this earth with people like us and never sinned once. He must be God in the flesh. We know left to our own devices, we maybe can't go five minutes without sinning in thought, word, or deed. But he never sinned. But listen to what the devil is trying to cause Jesus to doubt about. If you're the son of God, you shouldn't be starving. The father must not love you. Take these stones and turn them into bread. What's it going to hurt? Be your own provider. The devil always wants to cast doubt on the word of God. It's as if he's saying to Jesus what he said to Adam. God seems to be holding something back from you. You deserve better. But notice Jesus doesn't reason or argue with the devil. He doesn't engage in philosophical debate. He doesn't enter into a discussion of economic theories about the distribution of resources. He goes straight to the word of God. It is written. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. In the context of Deuteronomy 8, Moses explains why God tested the people of God in the, in the desert, including allowing them to experience hunger. They had complained about what God was providing and what he was not providing, and they said, is God with us or not? And so listen to the testimony in Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 and 3. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God had let them experience hunger so that they would realize that satisfying physical need was not enough. So Jesus uses this verse as he combats the temptation of the enemy to remind them that they are to live, notice, from every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that's why we confess with the Apostle Paul that all Scripture is useful and inspired by God. All things that God has mentioned are useful and authoritative. And Israel is the example of what happens when we do not follow the word of God. But Jesus models for us what happens when we do. We might be tempted to pick and choose. You know, I like these words over here a little bit more over these words over here. But we need to remember that life is more than material satisfaction. So if that's the case, my friends, will you trust life, will you trust God when life is hard? Will you wait upon his response and upon his provision? Or are you tempted to give in and muscle things in in your own way? Like Adam and Eve. They were tempted, they ate, and immediately they regretted their decision. Jesus never had any regrets. Esau and Judas betrayed what was right and regretted their decision. Jesus never betrayed anyone, especially not the Father. He never had any regrets. 
The people of Israel regretted their decisions again and again where they disobeyed the Lord. Not so with our Lord Jesus Christ. He knows that the mouth of the Lord speaks and there is life. And God is gracious. And think about what happened as the people in the wilderness complained. God poured out manna and it covered everything on the ground. All they had to do was go and pick it up. But here it's as if the devil is tempting Jesus. Why wait for the ground to be covered as it were? Go ahead and turn those stones into bread. But Jesus stands firm on the word of God. He will depend on the Father for all things. He will not abuse his privilege as the Son of God to go beyond what God allows because he is modeling for us what it is to be in harmony and dependency upon God. And later on in his ministry, he would say, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Think about this. If Jesus had prepared food for himself outside of the will of God, he would not have been living by faith in the Father. It would have disqualified him from being the Savior. But because he passed the test, because he said we live from the hand of God, from the mouth of God, he remained qualified to be the bread of life and could later stand up and say, I am the bread of life. Even telling people that they needed to eat his flesh and drink his blood, not as a cannibal, not as a sacrament, but, but he's saying, my word is life. You live in me. So he passed the test, the first test of obedience. He will trust the Father. He would defeat the devil by the word of God, by the power of the Spirit. And friends, we're commanded to do the same thing today. We can walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the word of God. We can stand firm on the truth of God's word when temptation comes. But next, Jesus is challenged by the test of pride, the test of pride. Where the devil is going to challenge Jesus once again to go beyond what is written by appealing to what is written. And he will give a very clever temptation as he does so. And so we ask the question, is this a place of protection or presumption? Our text tells us that the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Now I'll stop right there. And let's consider what's happening. The devil is taking Jesus to Jerusalem, puts him on the highest point of the temple, and the temple is what? It's the important place of provision from God, of protection, of fellowship between God and his people is where they come and they worship and they bow before him. And it's at that very place that the temptation is taking place. We see in the first temptation that Jesus had defeated the evil one by saying, it is written. Now the devil's going to try to turn the tables on him by saying, it is written. See, even the devil can quote scripture, but not correctly. Not according to the sound rules of interpretation. You see, we, we believe in what's called the analogy of faith where Scripture interprets Scripture. And Scripture can never be used to turn against itself or to show contradictions because it cannot. God does not speak with a forked tongue. And so what he says will be confirmed in his word. And so in response to this, is it a place of protection or presumption? Go ahead and do this. Jesus said, no, we need to use the word of God correctly. 
And so let's complete the thought that the devil had started here. He said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And I want you to note the word and here. It's going to become very important. And on their heads, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus, you're the son of God. Jump off. You're the beloved one. What can happen to you? The angels themselves will catch you. What an amazing spectacle this would be. It's the same temptation that Jesus will hear later in his life as he hangs on the cross. His enemies cry out, if you're the son of God, come down. Save yourself and save us. Now Jesus knows that angels are all around him. He knows that they serve at his command. In fact, he knows he can call on them in a moment's notice. But he also knows that the Father's will must be done. The devil is prompting him, jump, you won't even stub a toe. You'll just float to the ground in the protective arms of the angels. Prove that you're the Son of God. But Jesus doesn't need to prove anything. He's already had the Father's testimony that he's the beloved Son. He knew where he had come from. He knew he had the ability to do what the devil even challenges him to do. He says at his trial, I could call upon legions of angels. But he doesn't. Not at this time. He will always do the things that God wants to do and do it in God's way. And he will also correctly use the promises of the word of God. And now I want to draw our attention back to the word and. As we listen and look at the actual promises as they're given in Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You see what the devil's doing by taking out the words to guard you in all your ways and just putting the word and, he's changing the promise. The promise that had been given was that the Messiah, indeed the people of God, will be guarded by God in all of their ways. Not when they try to tempt God to do something spectacular or out of, outside of the will of God. As Spurgeon says, we are kept in our ways, not in our folly. The commentator Robert Mount says, God has promised his providential care for life as we live it out daily in normal fashion. He has not promised supernatural intervention when we decide to jeopardize life in order to prompt him to action. So Jesus will use the word of God correctly so that the promise is properly understood. And then he will say, do not test the Lord. He knew that at this time it was against the Father's will for him to intentionally put himself in harm's way. And as it were, cause the Father to have to intervene to deliver him. And so he says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. True faith in God does not demand on God to perform a miracle or to make a special provision or to claim some type of right that is beyond what is written. The one who is truly walking with the word of God, with the Lord of God, does not say, you owe me, but simply says, I'm so thankful for all that I have. And doesn't try to manipulate the promises of God. Jesus is quoting here from Deuteronomy 6, which actually refers to what was going on in Exodus 17. 
In Exodus 17, the people are complaining because there's no food or drink. Verse 2 of chapter 17 of the book of Exodus, they say, give us water to drink. And then they go on and complain about the food that they have and how much better life was when they were back in Egypt. Apparently they had forgotten about that whole slavery thing when they were actually oppressed. But it gets so bad that in verse 7 of Exodus 17, they even ask, is the Lord among us or not? They're putting God to the test. And I surely hope that we never arrive at a point in our lives where we will ask the same question and put God to the test by doubting the words that he has already given us about providing, about being with us, about protecting, about guiding, about holding us in the palms of his hands until he takes us to the shores of heaven. They had put God to the test. They had complained. And complaining is a sign that we do not trust the Lord. But history has a warning for us. If we were to take our archaeological spades and we were to go to the southern part of Jordan in the wilderness and start digging, how far down would we go before we'd start arriving at the bones of an entire generation that died in the desert because they put God to the test? God is not honored in complaining. He is honored in faithful trust and obedience. While Satan will misuse Scripture, Jesus rightly shows that all of Scripture works together. Israel had put God to the test. It's as if they were saying, what have you done for me lately? But the new and the true Israelites will not put God to the test. Jesus knows the truth of the word of God. He knows that angels serve the purposes of God in all his ways, not just in special times of testing. God guides you, my friends, in all your ways as you walk with him and he wants to provide for you and bless you and encourage you in the dailiness of life. So study. Study the word of God. Study to know it, to memorize it, to cause it to frame your thinking, to guide your decisions. It's the hard work of growing in Christ. But that's what will guide us so that we will correctly use the promises of God. Jesus will pass the test of pride, but there remains one test he must pass, the test of power. In the history of God's people, the enemy successfully uses the same temptation to mislead and to destroy. Sometimes we might say that sex, money, and power seems to work in every generation and almost every situation. We might call them pleasure, pride, and power. But in this last test, we see what I call the devil's delusion. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. These can be yours, the devil says. Just serve the devil and rule the world. It's almost as if it's some cheap game show. All this can be yours if the price is right. But is that really true? Is this really a promise that the devil can deliver us with? And was the price worth paying? The reason why I put the devil's delusion here is because while I believe that the devil has some control, has some influence in the world, he is still a created creature under the sovereignty of God. And he's a liar. And he's a deceiver. And so 
he might be able to afford a a provision of power, seeming influence. It is borrowed power. It is borrowed influence from a higher power. The devil always promises more than he has the power to deliver. Remember, he used this same deception on Adam and Eve. Just eat the fruit, and you shall be like God. Just worship me, and you shall rule. The bait, it looked so good. For Adam, it says, for Adam and Eve, it says, when she saw that the fruit was so good and desirable for wisdom, she took it. Perhaps as the, the glories and glitter of the kingdoms of the world are there and probably what is a vision before Jesus, it perhaps looked so good. But the hook is buried underneath. This is a wickedly clever temptation from the devil. But it's a lie. Because Jesus already knows that he will inherit the nations. That has been promised in many places. I put a few on the screen for you can write down to consider later. He knows that this inheritance will come because he will obey the Father perfectly, go through the bitterness of the cross, the death, and the resurrection as part of the plan that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit hatched in eternity past in the infinite mind of God. So, of course, Jesus knew He would inherit all the nations, and he knew how he would inherit all the nations. And so he will obey the Father. He will not deny the Father. But he knows that as a man, there will be a lifetime of obedience and of faithfulness to the Father and to his commands, and that includes a painful suffering and death on a cross. And so as one commentator said, each time Jesus says no to Satan, he says yes to the cross. And that really is what we are to to say every day as we take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow Christ. We need to be careful to watch over our hearts, what we allow to percolate in our hearts, what we allow to course through our mind, what we allow our eyes to visibly see, what we allow our words to actually express. And at every turn, using the Word of God, to stand against the resistance, uh, stand against the temptations of the devil, to resist him, and to do what is right. Don't give an inch in the garden of your life to a lie. Continue to tend the garden of your heart with the word of God, confessing sins and, and looking to him to continue to give you strength to resist temptation. Don't leave an opportunity. For the devil to sow lies in your life. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He always promises more than he can deliver. And he was defeated at the cross and will be cast into the lake of fire one day. And isn't it better to worship the one who will do the casting than the one who was casted? So then we have the Redeemer's report. Then Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Think of what the nature of this temptation was. Satan was blatantly calling on Jesus to violate the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. If Jesus had succumbed to that temptation, he would not have inherited the nations. He would no longer be the sinless Messiah who would die for the sins of his people. 
I'm showing the wisdom of a recent commentary, Russell Moore. He said, Jesus refused to exchange, refused to exchange the end-time exaltation by the Father for a right-now exaltation of a snake. You know why we get in so much trouble in our lives? We want it right now. We want the glory, the power, the pleasure, the immediacy. We want it right now. And we make compromises. We cut corners. We long for that right now exaltation of the snake. And if we hold on in Christ, abide in Christ, stay obedient to Christ, live for Christ, we will get the eternal glorification in heaven as we worship the Lamb forever and ever and ever. And so Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God. And he's quoting here from Deuteronomy 6. God had commanded the Israelites as they were going through the nations to not worship the gods of the nations. I'm sorry, through the wilderness, to not worship the gods of the nations. Yet what did they do in the wilderness? What did they do even when they went into the promised land? Again and again, they turned after the gods of the nations. They failed. Jesus will not fail. He will succeed. And look at the reward that Jesus will get, even if we just stay in the book of Matthew itself. He says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And Jesus did that all throughout his life. At the end of his life, before he ascends to heaven, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He knew how he would inherit the authority and power over all the nations and would walk that path perfectly. And so with a word, he says, be gone. It's unthinkable that the Lord of life would bow before the enemy because only God is worthy of worship. And as we have just sung in one of the hymns, one single word shall fell him. At the word of Jesus, the devil must fall. And as we quote the word of God and stand on the word of God, we can resist the lies of the devil in our own life. But think about this, my friends. No golden calf can replace crown of heaven so he sends him away but we need to keep in mind that it's almost if we intentionally sin it's almost as if it's a slight bow of the head to satan instead of bowing to the lord jesus christ of course in the gospel there is lavish forgiveness of course there is grace and mercy but there must first be recognition of sin there must first be the recognition that we make wrong decisions. We do wrong things. And we turn to the cross and say, oh God, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? And we confess our sins and receive the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. And lastly, then we see the angelic party. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And of course, the devil has to leave. Because he's been commanded to, Jesus can vanquish the devil with one word. Now the angels come. I wish we were given more details. Had they been sitting there watching and waiting, this battle going on, just waiting to rush in as part of a victory party? It kind of seems that's the case. And then when they see that the temptations have passed, it says they come in and minister to him. And I can only imagine... There's a type of victory celebration going on here. He who had not eaten for 40 days and 40 nights, I wonder, was there a banquet laid for him in the desert, served by the angels? Whatever it was, 
We'll find out one day. We don't have enough information now. But Jesus had passed all the tests. He had won the battle against the devil's temptations, against the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. He's winning the battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Unlike Israel, which had tested God again and again and failed, they complained because there was no food or water. They did not take God at his word. They put God to the test in his judgment because we can make no demands of God to prove anything. They failed because they ran after other gods who promised pleasure and power and prosperity and protection. Forgetting that God alone is the provider of his people. And at each point where they failed, Jesus succeeded. He depended on the Father alone for life and strength. He had a robust reverence for the Lord at every moment in his life. He worshipped the Lord in purity of heart. He succeeded as the true son of God, as the second Adam, when Israel and the first Adam had failed. And think about what Jesus did as he walked this path, obeying the Lord at every turn, walking in his paths, trusting in him, being provided for, and standing against temptation. He showed us the path to fulfilling a promise that we all know well, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. Jesus walked that path for us, before us, and now invites us to walk it in his power and for his glory. Next week, we will see Jesus starting his earthly public ministry. Now that he is the anointed son of God, he is the approved Son of God that has passed through the waters, has passed through the wilderness, has resisted temptation. He will begin his public proclamation that the kingdom of God has come. But as we wait for that, what are some lessons that we can learn from today's lesson? God's word never fails. Therefore, use it against the lies of the evil one. That's why we need to hide the word of God in our hearts. We need to memorize it. We need to know it so that when the temptation comes, we recognize its error and we combat it with the word of God. But the same spirit who led Jesus leads us today. Isn't that amazing? Same Holy Spirit of God. And why? Because he wants us to mold us to become more like Jesus in how we live. Thirdly, because Jesus resisted the devil and succeeded, he sends us out to do the same. Therefore, we can resist the devil in the power of Christ, and we are called to do that. And lastly, Jesus successfully walked through the wilderness so that we can walk through the wilderness of this life, and we can trust him to lead us now and forevermore. Let us pray. like for each one to take just a moment right now in his heart or her heart and just lay your life afresh before the Lord. Say, yes, Lord, your will, not mine. And as you do that, invite him in to just guide you going forward to know his word better to walk in his spirit more and to trust him more deeply.
Father, I pray for my dear ones gathered with me this morning. We are needy people. And so we turn to a great God who can meet us at every point in our need. Thank you for the sufficiency of Christ. We stand firm in that sufficiency. And now would you cause us to walk forward, growing in actual holiness, day by day as we trust you, as we depend upon you, as we lean into you, as we obey you. And then, Father, would you receive great glory for the transformation that you're bringing in our lives. And would you cause us to be quick to turn back to you and say, thank you, Lord, for such mercy and grace. For your glory and for our good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, you stand as we close out our service with this great promise that God, Christ, will hold us fast. Christ Turn to side when he comes at last.